with the Next Well Podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Coming to you from the beautiful Lower Laguna Madre area in deep south Texas. And we are going to be discussing public beach access on this podcast as it goes forward and how public beach access influences both property rights and public access and the public trust. The American shoreline is pretty complex and we have many coastal access issues going on through the United States from New Jersey to the Outer Banks to Florida to Texas to California. So we are going to move forward with our first and uh, premiere episode, which is going to be on Martin's Beach in California. And uh, we will have, on today's episode, Angela Howe, Legal Director of Surfrider Foundation, and Sarah Dameron, the Chapter Manager of Surfrider Foundation, and their involvement in the last eight-plus years of this access issue in California, which is just outside of beautiful Half Moon Bay. And the Surfrider Foundation, which led a charge to keep that stretch of beach in California open, and it just recently ended with um, the United States Supreme Court uh, deciding not to hear the case of uh, Mr. Kosla versus the California Coastal Commission and closing off his beach. So I would like to introduce our guests, um, Angela Howe, who's a leader director from Surfrider Foundation, and Sarah Dameron, who is chapter manager of the Surfrider Foundation, and both have been working on this for how long, ladies? Five and a half, six years? Longer? Longer. <laughs> we, uh, we started working on this uh, in 2010, so eight years. That's a good, uh, it's a good campaign. So the way I understand how Martin Speech came about was it traditionally was um, it has over 100 years of documented public access to that beach, correct? Am I, am I right on that? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we, we've heard, well, we've seen now through um, actual surveys submitted to the Postal Commission uh, testimony of access stretching back well over 100 years with some people even um, talking about, you know, great-great-grandparents visiting Martin's Beach. So there's definitely a long history of of documented access, and certainly that's not even the whole story, right? Because, um, you know, first peoples, of course, I imagine um, access Martin's Beach as well. So definitely a long history of public access. Awesome. Uh, So in 2008... The family that originally owned the property sold two lots to Vinal uh, uh, Kosla. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, it's actually Martin's Beach 1 and Martin's Beach 2 LLC, which we came okay. to find out later on through discovery in another case was uh, was Vinod Kosla, which had been the buzz around town for quite a while. So Kosla has a lot of money. He's co-founder of Sun Microsystems. He's a multi-billionaire. He's got other uh, venture capital schemes going on, but he, he markets himself as a, a green entrepreneur. So how, how does that, how did that match up with, with him deciding? I mean, it seemed like for a couple of years, he kept the beach open then all of a, and then just decided one day to, to close the gate. So how did that, what was his reasoning for coming up about that? 
Well, his explanation for that uh, was that it didn't seem to make sense, more or less. It wasn't a profitable business. Uh, he, it, as far as the submitted testimony goes, um, you know, there were a whole lot of people trying to come to Barton's Beach. Uh, they had increased $10, and they just didn't see why they should continue to, you know, have somebody that's, you know, on fully manning the gate, manning the parking lot, taking the $10. Um, so they decided they were just going to stop doing that, even though they were told, you know, at the outset before purchasing the property by the county. So why not just open it up? It's just because it wasn't a business venture for them? Is that, is that... Yeah, it just didn't seem logical is, is what it seemed like um, from the testimony that was supplied. didn't seem logical to him to... Uh, keep the gate open since not that many people were coming in according to uh, what you know they had to say. Yeah, and I think that's one of the crux of his arguments is that they can't make me run a, a money losing business is how he couches it. Right. But in fact, if he just doesn't put a gate up at all, doesn't restrict access, he doesn't have to collect money. He doesn't have to hire guards you know, or hire someone to stay at a gate and collect money. He can just leave the road open for public access. So he, he's a little disingenuous in the arguments, at least submitted in their brief, that there is an option to not run a business and just to allow public access. There, there's um, also a beautiful beach and a public resource at the bottom of that hill, at the bottom right. of that road, um, that the public was used to going to for, for generations. So the county does, does not necessarily maintain the beach. It is... Um, it is just a, a public beach. As far as I know, the, the previous property owners, the, the Deanies, um, used to have a little store there and, and restrooms, and they were running a business, so they provided those amenities. Um, but, you know, as we stated before, it's not required, and basically those amenities are, are no longer there. Is that correct, Sarah? I believe that's the current status. That's correct. Cool. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I understand that. Um, you still have to have a little bit of people on the beach for sure so uh, i just uh is there a reason why they so nobody operates the business at all anymore there well other than um you know somebody being there to take the parking fee there's oh, okay. there's nothing to be run okay let's start, well, we'll, we'll move on from that let's let's go on to uh okay so 2010 surfrider san mateo gets involved in, in the campaign for martin's beach how did that come about well, we were first contacted by uh, a local guy, a uh, surfer and surf coach at the Happen Bay High School um, named Mike, Mike Wallace, and he had reached out because he noticed, and so he had reached out to us to, you know, see if we could find some more information and, you know, see if there was something to be done about it. So that's how that all got started, and Angela and I started doing some, some digging and uh, fact-finding, and, and, you know, after we were able to do a little bit of that and establish, uh, you know, exactly what the issue was uh, and have some amount of information to work and figure out, you know, whether or not we could develop some kind of campaign around it, it was at that time that we uh, brought in the chapter and engaged the chapter to take the first step, writing to Mr. Kosla and asking him to establish access again to not have the gate walk across the road and to restore access to what it once was. Uh, I have a pretty distinct memory of when the campaign 
was really kicked off for me was Sarah invited me to come up, you know, from Southern California to speak with the, the locals on the coast there to talk about the problem. So Surfrider at the time we had a, a little company car, you know, at least that was wrapped with turtle, uh, like a turtle <laughs> shape, you know, it's green yes. and blue and very distinct. Yeah. <laughs> so I drove, you know, six, six and a half hours at the I-5, got some very strange looks. <laughs> and I, I go to this little, um, you know, community room in, in Half Moon Bay. Is it where they, I think it's where they kept the Blue Water Task Force, um, testing materials. So it wasn't really even a, an office. It was more just a storage room. Uh, yeah. And, we, and, you know, we talked with a dozen local community members and, uh, I think I hadn't even seen the beach yet at that point. It was an evening meeting. We were going to the beach the next day, but you could tell in the faces of these community members, how much this public resource meant to them. And there was a mom, you know, who was cheering up talking about how she would spend her, her birthdays there. And she had her son with her and how she wanted him to be able to enjoy the same resource and just everyone in the chapter seeing what happened, you know, this was something that was enjoyed by everyone. And then all of a sudden there's a locked gate up and it's no longer a public resource. It it felt like, you know, there was something, there was this great injustice done to the community and uh, they were really robbed of something that belonged to everyone. Um, So in 2012, was it 2012 when, uh, it really kind of blew up with the uh, the servers getting arrested, jumping the gate, and going surfing and coming out. Yeah, the Martins Five was the was kind of the big story that that kicked off at least some legal proceedings. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there were five surfers, um, young guys, that went down there um, to surf because they wanted to say, "Hey, this is our land. You know, this is our public resource, and we are entitled to to go down and use it." Um, so they, yeah, they hopped the gate, they went down there, the, the sheriff was called, um, they were arrested for trespass, um, and then, you know, they had an arraignment, uh, a month or so later, and luckily we were able to get some pro bono attorneys to help them out, including Stanford Law Clinic, uh, came in to help out pro bono and, and a couple, you know, just great community members, um, and the you know, the, the sheriff's office is like, what do we do? You know, this is an open question of whether or not the, the road should be open or closed or, you know, who owns the land, who owns the road. Um, so essentially the, the district attorney said, Hey, you know, this, until this is decided, we cannot bring criminal charges against these, these guys. So the charges were dropped at the trial. Um, and there's a great little video on it on Martin's five that we have on the, the surf rider Vimeo account. It's, um, really well put together and tells the story really well. Very cool. Sometimes you've got to be willing to, to go all the way to, to make a point. Um, so now, now let's get into the meat of the whole thing. So, so in 2013, Surfrider Foundation filed suit against COSA. Is that, is that the correct date for that? Yes, March 2013. Okay. Um, and at this point, it's been five years and the Coastal Commission has been kicking it around. Nothing's been really been done. Uh, got some people arrested. Um, and, and now, what was the, why, why did Surfrider Foundation decide to, to litigate the case at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, at Surfrider, as you know, Rob, we use litigation as a resort. Um, yes. We're very frugal with our resources. Uh, the um, litigation chapter litigation is actually funded by our grassroots chapters. 
Um, sometimes we can find pro bono attorneys, thankfully. <clears throat> and for here, we, we were able to locate contingency fee-based attorneys um, because we had such a strong case, we thought. Um, but, you know, we tried everything. Uh, we tried talking to the property owner. We tried, We got a letter back from the lawyer basically welcoming us to bring suit. Um, the, the Martins Five, you know, that happened in October 2012. The charges were actually dropped um, in February of 2013, and we sued in March because, you know, after you're getting people arrested, um, you try to negotiate, you've pled with the county, the local electeds, the state electeds, um, kind of everybody to do something. You, you feel like your back is against the wall, and litigation is that tool that you have that you have to turn to. Um, and Sarah, I know you're more familiar with the different ways we tried to exhaust all other remedies. Yeah. Um, so we did. We started out with writing a letter to the obviously. Um, we got. Uh, I don't remember if we got nothing back or if that was when we heard from the um, the attorney. But um, in any case. We the letter was good, by the way. I read it. Yeah. <laughs> we sent a second letter because uh, there was either no response or, or whatever. We weren't getting anywhere. And uh, at that point, the attorney definitely did respond. And as Angela said, uh, you know, more or less said, we'll see you in court. <laughs> um, but obviously, they weren't going to bring suit. That was going to you know, be on, on our uh, end to do that. Um, we also did... Uh, reach out to the California Coastal Commission. Um, we, you know, generated some letters to them, uh, asking them to take action. Um, we had reached out to the county, but I believe the county had kind of you know, pointed fingers to the Coastal Commission. Um, so it seemed clear that they didn't feel like they could do much of anything. Um, we had a rally <laughs> out at Martin's Beach uh, just to bring attention to the issue. Uh, generate some, uh, you know, media on the on that front, and so yeah. It, without the coastal commission taking action, um, there there wasn't anything really left for us to do. So that's when we um, started looking into our, our legal options, and you know, Angela worked with some great folks to research, um, you know, what would make the most sense as far as uh, what kind of. Uh, litigation to bring forward, or, or I guess on what grounds to bring litigation forward, um, and what our, our main argument would be. And so, uh, uh, obviously, I think we picked the, uh, the right um, complaint to bring forward, uh, as, a, as it turns out, since ultimately, um, you know, our side of the, the argument was upheld. And, you know, I don't want to get too much into that and have a spoiler alert here, <laughs> well, we're going to get to all that in a minute. So, Angela, what was the basis for the uh, the suit against Coastal Marshall? Yeah, well, instead of under you know traditional property law theories like prescriptive easement or um, customary use, things like that, we actually turned to the California Coastal Act because of the very strong mandate within the California Constitution, Section Ten, Article Four and the California Coastal Act resource protection provisions, which actually has a chapter on beach access, um, we thought that would be the strongest way to go. Uh, so Section 30106 of the California Coastal Act provides for um, the requirement that a landowner uh, obtain a coastal development permit 
if there's any change in intensity of use of the property. So not only do you need a permit um, for putting a whole new house, you know, in the coastal zone and making sure that major construction complies with uh, coastal resource protection laws, but also because beach access is so um, important and enshrined in the Coastal Act, uh, there's also this provision for, okay, well, you also need a permit if you're, if you're changing the very use of, of this beach. Um, that's something that the Coastal Commission has review over. Um, and not only if you're restricting access, but also if you're going to start flooding in more and more access, the Coastal Commission can, can review that. So any change in intensity of use, that's kind of the wording we honed in on. And um, we had positive case law. Um, interestingly, from a case that Surfrider lost, I think in the mid-90s, <laughs> with a, a parking lawsuit in Santa Barbara. So it was, it was under the same uh, section of the Coastal Act, um, but it was interpreted our way. Basically, you do need a coastal development permit um, for, for anything that's going to uh, block access. So, uh, you know, not only was it basically there's, there's a lot of people on the beach and then there's very few, he also, Bernard Kosla, the property owner, also put up lock gates, uh, uh, hired security guards, and changed the signage. There was this great billboard that used to say Martin's Beach and kind of have a sign advertising access. Right. Um, changed that signage, put up no trespassing signs, and, and really, you know... It's a hard it. ass, I guess, the whole thing is. So, <clears throat> no fault the suit. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is my podcast. I can cuss if I want to So... So okay, so y'all y'all follow the suit, and then in the meantime, um, it's going to different courts. But also, and this I found this interesting uh, when I came across it. I actually did not know about this. Um, so around 2014, uh, California State Senator Jerry Hill introduced a legislation to acquire uh, Martin Speaks through in a domain if there was a compromise by January 1st, 2016. Is that right? Um, kind of. Okay. <laughs> so right. there have been a couple. Um, I mean, that just seems like a weird, weird thing, but yeah. Okay. No, that's okay. Um, yes. There yeah, have been a couple pieces of legislation uh, on this issue, but you're correct uh, that uh, State Senator Jerry Hill has been the author, um, has really led the legislative, uh, on the legislative front of opening Martin's Beach. Um, he is the representatives for you know that part of so we really have appreciated his leadership on this issue um so the first bill uh which you're right uh was introduced in 2014 in that session uh it mandated that one of california state agencies called the state lands commission uh work to negotiate some kind of easement with COSLA, and okay. it yeah, it, it basically said that they needed to do that for a period of one year, and then if access could not be negotiated, the commission could uh, take the step of acquiring an easement through eminent domain. Which would have been the road. Which, uh, well, yeah, so I think what he had in mind and you know what we agreed with was actually an easement to and along Martin's Beach, so the road would be the two Martin's Beach part to get people right. from Highway 1 down to the beach, but then also an easement along the beach so that, you know, because people typically did use the beach for things like picnicking, 
um, which, you know, ostensibly is above the mean high tide line in, in many instances, so that people could carry on their traditional uses as they as they had in the past. Cool. Okay. Good. All right. Um, Angela, so Surfire files suit and it goes to the California court system. Um, can you give us a little history on where it started and ended up before it got to the, uh, the petition for the Supreme Court? Sure, yeah. So we filed in March of 2013 under this Coastal Act uh, cause of action. Um, we had a hearing the next summer. It was actually in two parts. We had a hearing with witnesses, a trial phase, that I believe lasted um, five days, and then another day for closing arguments. Um, and then in September of 2014, so about a year and a half later after we filed, we received the, the positive ruling from Judge Barbara Mollick of San Mateo County Superior Court. Um, and she basically said, um, you must cease preventing access to this beach. Um, so that was her ruling. Uh, the order came out that he basically had to open the beach uh, just as the Deanies had done. Uh, did not order him to charge a fee or not charge a fee, um, but said at a minimum you have to you have to open the beach as it previously was prior to your purchase of the property um, if you do not have a coastal development permit to do otherwise. So basically, go seek a permit if you want to change this. Um, that he of course appealed up to the up to the um, appellate court. Um, you, you may have seen a lot of articles talking about Vinod Coastal's litigious nature. I think. Right. You know, I think he would even agree to that. <laughs> He's pretty much vowed to use litigation uh, at all ends and at all costs. Um, so he... I, I'm sorry? I'm going to interrupt you, but I have one question. How much does a California coastal permit cost? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually uh, gotten one myself, so I don't really know. Uh, okay. I don't think that's burdensome some on a building. Uh, I would say that. It's, it's definitely, I mean, whatever. It seems like he spent a lot more money than he should have. But anyway, okay, let's go. Sorry, I did, I just, the question keeps popping in my head all the time. Like, it can't be more than a couple hundred bucks. But, but let's go. All right, let's go. Well, I, I can actually think, I can safely say that it is more than a couple hundred bucks. Oh, but, is it really? Maybe. <laughs> but that, that said, I mean, money is not much of an object to Fosla, I don't think. So um, it was more about, I think what he would say is his principle. Oh, okay. Okay. All right, sorry, I didn't interrupt you, Angela. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, oh, and it's such a great story. I love telling how, how much we won, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so we won at the lower court level. It was appealed up to the California Appellate Court for a three-judge panel. Unanimously ruled in our favor and concurred with the lower court um, that uh, Coastal has to obtain a coastal development permit if he wants to close the beach. Um, and the beach must be open unless or until that happens. Um, he went ahead and, and used all of his appellate resources. He appealed up to the uh, California Supreme Court with a petition for review. The California Supreme Court rejected that petition for review, and that's when he hired Paul Clement, who was the former Solicitor General of the United States, so who had represented the United States in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, to write his um, petition for writ of certiorari, so asking a petition to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case. And that petition really couched it in terms of this is a Fifth Amendment takings, this is an infringement on personal property um, against the U.S. Constitution, 
um, did not say much at all about the California Coastal Act and the requirements under that state law, um, and really tried to focus this as a private property owner's rights case, um, and you know making making poor Vinod Kosla run a business when he shouldn't have to. So that was the crux of that argument. And then um, last Monday, I believe October 1st, we heard that the U.S. Supreme Court denied that petition for review. So putting an end to the 5.5-year saga of putting <laughs> with a clean sweep, decisions all in our favor. Okay, so that's where we're at right now. Um, the beach should be open. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen anything if he actually has a gate open now or not, but... Um, but his next step is now he has to go through the permitting process, right? I mean, if, if he wants to continue this, is there any indication he wants to continue this? Or how well, do you see at this point? I, I think, I don't know, you could look at it two different ways. So, um, for example, right now he is um, allowing the gate to be open. Um, I don't recall the hours. I actually... Uh, Went to Martin's Beach a couple weeks ago, and I there was a sign there, and I took a picture of it. It said the hours that um, the gate would be open, and people could come down and park for ten dollars. Um, and it does seem that that's at least what's happening right now. I know in past years, uh, when, when the gate was open, access was reduced in the winter months, uh, and the beach, you know, the the gate was closed sometimes or the hours were shorter, so I'm not sure if that will happen this year. It remains to be seen. Um, but even that said, uh, you know, the fact that he charges $10 instead of, you know, the former charge of $2, the billboard still remains painted over. I think a case could be made that, you know, even his current actions still constitute a change of intensity of use for which he would need to get a permit. So... We'll, uh, we will see how that, that plays out. But uh, the big thing for us is that regardless of what he's doing right now, unless uh, some action is taken by, you know, one of these state agencies to secure permanent public access, he could decide tomorrow that he's going to close access down to the beach again and be recalcitrant and wait to be sued again and have the litigation drawn out. So we, that's what we're really working towards now. Uh, we're, you know, we're glad that people can uh, currently access the beach in some way, but we really want to see that access permanently protected. Okay. So this isn't a unique situation on the California coast or the Texas coast for that matter, but, but especially California where people go through these the very elaborate ways of not looking like they have access to the beaches next to them. So is, is this the case that's going to hopefully finally define it as far as the Coastal Commission goes, or is the Coastal Commission always just going to be on a case-by-case basis? Yeah, I think that's a great question regarding precedent. And, you know, for me, I think this is a... This is a defining case in terms of the strength of the, the Coastal Act um, to, to be considered um, with the bookends of private property um, laws that protect private property. 
but private property can't just totally eviscerate the protections of the Coastal Act. So I think we're really upholding that intention for, you know, why the voters um, in 1972 put Prop 20 into place, um, those strong coastal, coastal access protection provisions in the Coastal Act, and, um, you know, saying that there is private property, there, there are private property rights, but those have to be balanced against the public access rights. And it's the Coastal Commission's role to do so. So I think with this case, what Coastal was trying to do was, was basically step over the Coastal Commission, just avoid it, you know, not even do the permitting, um, just say it's, it's private property rights or nothing, and, and nothing can infringe on my private property rights. And here we really said, no, there's important coastal access laws, um, an important and established uh, coastal management program uh, that's been around for 40 years uh, that you have to adhere to, even though, yes, you you have private property that abuts the coast, um, and you're a very, uh, you know, powerful individual uh, who can hire a ton of attorneys, but that does not get you around our important coastal resource protections. So I think, you know, it makes a statement in that regard. I think we've uh, created great precedent for that provision of the Coastal Act for getting a permit for any change of intensity of use. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, I think the, for, for takings and when a takings happens, um, we never, we never had to go there. We never really, uh, adjudicated that within our, within our argument. So, so we're talking about this, um, y'all decided not to go with, um, prescriptive rights and customary use. Um, I've, can you go in a little more detail about that? Because I mean, it seems like that that's typically uh, how beach access cases go, especially in well, the Texas and Florida area. That, that seems to be the way it's working, and it, it, it gets muddy in some ways. But I, I just want to know if you could clarify why that's not the best option to go in this defense. Yeah, I think... Um the, the cause of action that we used was very, very straightforward. So um, we were able to get a, a quicker, cleaner win with this cause of action, but that is definitely not to say that we, we should not use prescriptive rights. When we have that history of use, we should not use customary use, um, which we're doing right now even in the Florida Panhandle. Um, really important customary use laws to be developed around the nation, um, including California. Um but here, because we have strong state law, we were able to go to that law first um, and, and use it, uh, like I said, in, in a little bit cleaner, more direct manner in this case. Great. So how does, uh, does Mr. Coastal have a timeline that he has to file his, his, uh, his application? Or is it just... Kind of right now. That I don't honestly know. Uh, um, that's something that we need to discuss with the Coastal Commission. Yeah, I have a sense that they might do a notice of violation if he does not file soon. But his attorney in in the press did state that he intends to file an, a coastal development permit application. And we're just going to keep an eye on that and see see what happens in the next step and. Yeah, I mean, I think that process can take anywhere from six months to two years, depending on, you know, requests for additional information, 
potential negotiations with the property owner, things like that. So, uh, what's been y'all's overall? I mean, this is this is great. This has been a. I mean, um, Surfrider Foundation is obviously one of my favorite coastal advocacy groups uh, in the world. I'm on the board of directors, but um, I, I. What do y'all think the future result of this? this is going to be because I mean, I, I've gone, I'm in Texas and I've, I've gone through the whole, uh, we had, you know, beach access issues too all the time. And, and, you know, we had Severus versus Patterson, which did not come out very well for us at all, but it seems like, uh, in this case, y'all were able to, to find the win. And I wonder if, if that, that, that formula is, is applicable to, to coast all around the U S or is it just, kind of uh, specific to this this particular beach? I know it's a complicated question, but, you know. Well, I'll take the first part of the okay. question, okay. which is the outcome of, of this uh, campaign, yeah. which is uh, one way or another, beach access to Martin's Beach will be restored. Um, we are committed to that. We will see that through. Uh, however that needs to occur, there are a number of ways that could happen at this juncture. Uh, one of which is encouraging the State Lands Commission to pursue eminent domain uh, and acquire uh, a public access easement to in a Long Martin's Beach. We feel like that would be the most expedient way and probably the most cost-effective way, frankly, for the state uh, to you know, put an end to this long, ongoing uh, issue and permanently provide access to Martin's Beach. So, uh, in, regard, in regard to that, so he, he's claiming he's not getting compensated, or he wants compensation in some sort for access. Is that correct or no? Because it was him in a domain. I know he's asked for some ridiculous amount of money, like $30 million for the easement. Um, but... What would what would eminent domain bring? I mean, bring him as a, is there like any kind of estimate for what that's actually worth as far as that goes? Well, he offered to yeah he offered to sell um, to the easement you're right for thirty million dollars. Uh, best indications are that it would not be that much. Uh, fair market value of an easement was estimated by the State Lands Commission to be $360,000. However, um, in an eminent domain proceeding, I believe they have to calculate the um, compensation for the property taken. And I think that valuation is if, um, if that part of land was to come up uh, for sale, you know, the fair, fair market value. Uh, what would it bring on an open market? So... It's safe to say that an easement would cost the state somewhere between three hundred and sixty thousand and thirty million. Um, but it remains what that number actually is. <laughs> I don't think it's worth thirty million dollars. And we we would agree with that. Uh, I, I would imagine it would be more in the you know million ish type range um, since we're you know only talking about several acres. Uh, of a much larger property. 
Uh, wow. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it always comes out of conversation, and some places, it, it blows my mind, you know, in some areas, well, we're probably going to see it in Florida here pretty soon, but, um, you know, the amount of conversation sometimes goes way overboard, in, in my opinion. Um, and I think it, it, it actually encourages um, further, further development and encroachment on the beach, but this is, this is my opinion. Um, so, do y'all, uh, I, I guess this is a question for Angela, um, do you understand, it, it, was there any indication why the Supreme Court decided not to, to hear this case? Because I mean, they heard, they've, they've heard similar cases, well, I guess it's not similar, but they've heard beach cases like uh, Stop the Renourishment versus um, Florida. But yeah, so... I'm, I'm just wondering. Yeah, and they haven't taken a coastal case, I think, since then. So it's been almost 10 years, so we thought, you know, they, they might be thinking they're due. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, they, they issue this beautiful one-line statement that cert is denied. <laughs> so they oh, haven't yeah. really given an opinion with their denial. Um, but, you know, I, you know, it was probably because of our incredibly eloquent and persuasive brief in opposition. <laughs> which was written by our outside counsel. Um, but basically, you know, what we argued is, look, this, who was, this is... Who was Sir Frederick's outside counsel, by the way? Sorry. Same. Who was our outside counsel? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We had um, Anna Rose Matheson from California Appellate Law Group. She was really the lead author on that brief. And uh, Bill Hancock and Herb Fox also are her colleagues there that helped. Um, and then Eric Busher was our main trial attorney with Joe Cotchett at Cotchett Petrie McCarthy. So a, a San Francisco-based uh, plaintiff-side law firm uh, helping us on contingency fee basis. And then uh, Mark Massara, who's a coastal attorney here in California um, and used to actually be in-house with Surfrider a couple decades ago. Oh, wow. So he really helped formulate the, the argument. And, um, he's an expert on, on the Coastal Act. We've got alumni. Yeah. Um, Okay, I guess my final question, you guys, is, uh, uh, oh my God, I'm uh, the, uh, so, so, moving forward, uh, with all of our, our, our coastal access issues, um, can you go into a little bit about what Surfrider stands for as far as 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 public beach access goes i mean i've always the reason i love the organization is is that you know it's you know everyone has the right to the beach you know and and, and that's in most cases uh your biggest state park uh, and nobody should be denied and uh, i just want to know if, you know what y'all's personal opinion on that <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, Sarah, did you want to go or you want me to go? I've worked with Surfrider for 11 years now and have helped uh, manage the beach access program. And something that, that kind of speaks to everyone. You know, we say the beach is a resource that everyone should be able to enjoy. Um, the public trust doctrine, which dates back to ancient law and came to us through law, actually just, guarantees the submerged. Just any law. Uh, yeah, it guarantees the submerged waters to be used for 
at a minimum, fishing, fouling, and navigation. Um, but a lot of times states interpret that to mean recreation too. So, you know, Surfrider Foundation, we're all about the protection and enjoyment of oceans, waves, and beaches. And that enjoyment piece, we think, creates this beautiful cycle of people knowing, loving, appreciating the resource, and then growing to want to protect it, be a steward of the coastal environment. So beach access is foundational to what we do um, and very important to preserve. So, you know, we don't really drum up beach access cases. We've been pretty reactive um, in that sense, but it's always a a big part of our campaign um, docket, I guess, Uh, our our number of campaigns, you know, it'll be 20, 25% of our campaigns and the same with, uh, with our litigation. You know, if we have 20 cases, a good third of them will be beach access. Uh, it's just very important to our, to our activists. It's what people, um, want to protect, uh, just this right that they kind of consider sacred and, um, and undeniable. And, and that's why we've seen people really put themselves on the line, really, um, you know, stick in here with these like decades long campaigns, uh, to fight for, for what they believe is right. Well said. Um, it's also, I kind of see as the fact that, uh, we have public beaches. We, 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 in most, in most cases, you know, they're, they're promoted and they're, 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 uh, and, uh, they're embraced, you know, that that sliver of sand or that that area of sand, you know, it actually benefits the uh, the private property owner. Uh, I, I think it's a symbiotic relationship where if, you know you have a, you have a nice piece there, and, and you're you're enjoying the fact that yeah, people go there, and that may be a little annoying, but the same people are actually paying to maintain that beach. Um, seems like it, it should be a a definitely. A, a symbiotic relationship and not so much of a push and pull, which it seems like it always is. Definitely. I mean, it's a natural buffer for, for them and a, a resource that they can enjoy too. It's just whether, whether or not they enjoy it to the exclusion of others. That's usually what the fight's over. Well, always, right. yes. Unfortunately. Uh, but, thank you ladies very much. This has been Angela Howe, Legal Director of the Surfrider Foundation, and Sarah Dameron, uh, chapter manager for Surfrider Foundation. And uh, Surfrider Foundation is my favorite coastal advocacy group. And I encourage you to go check them out at uh, www.surfrider.org and um, see the great work they're doing. Because these girls and everybody else in that staff and all our volunteers are, are busting their asses to, to make sure we have clean water, clean beaches, and beach access. So thank you guys very much. Uh, Thank you very much to our sponsor, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. This has been The Next Swell, and uh, have a great night. Thank you. Thank you, girls.